This is Lara Momesso, one of the hosts of this podcast series, and today we are here for the book chat, the second of our series. Today's guest is Dr. Beatrice Zani, author of the book Women Migrants in Southern China and Taiwan, Mobilities, Digital Economies and Emotions, published by Routledge in 2021. Welcome to our book chat podcast, Beatrice. Hello, Lara. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be with you today and thank you very much for your invitation. I'm really excited to shortly, hopefully shortly, present my book and uh, I hope it will be of interest for all of you. Thank you so much, Beatrice, above all for agreeing to be with us today. Let me first briefly introduce you to our audience. Beatrice is currently affiliated to McGill University, where she works as a postdoctoral research fellow in Taiwan Studies at the Department of East Asian Studies. She received a PhD in sociology at Lyon II University in France in December 2019. And this monograph is a revision of her PhD thesis, and it explores the experiences of Chinese migrant women within China and between China and Taiwan as they move back and forth and even beyond this geographical context. Let's provide a bit of background about the book. We are in contemporary times, globally characterized by hypermobility of people, goods, and ideas. A historical phase defined as the age of migration by some scholars. And reflecting these global trends, the Chinese government has relaxed tight restrictions of movements within the country, very often related to household registration. And furthermore, restrictions of movements between China and Taiwan, related mainly to Beijing and Taipei relations, have gradually been lifted. The migrant stories you write about are very much entangled with these global, regional, cross-strait, as well as national events. In your ethnographic book, you trace the migratory path, biographical experiences, and entrepreneurial practices of Chinese migrant women who move within China from the countryside to the city, and later on to Taiwan through marriage, and back and forth between China and Taiwan often as a consequence of their decision to divorce from their husband in Taiwan. What emerged from your book is a captivating account of Chinese migrant women's lives as they experience subordination and marginalization, as well as paths to autonomy, economic independence, upward social mobility, and wishes of modernity. Overall, your book emphasizes what it feels like for the migrant women of your account to negotiate their way at the crossroad between subalternity and resistance, between subordinated labor and independent digital entrepreneurship, and between an inegalitarian labor market and new online opportunities for business and commerce. So, The story you tell us is different, very different from the one we are used to hear about Chinese migrant women, especially within the literature on Taiwan, especially amongst those that literature about marriage migration in Taiwan. We are used to hear about stories of subordination, marginalization, oppression, especially within the family. 
Instead, you tell us something more. These women are not just victims uh, of an exploitative labor and family regime. They are not just subalterns within this system, but they also have the capacity to contest their subalternity. They have ambitions of modernity, and through their action, they are active members of a cosmopolitan world. Above all, these women are not just great mothers, wives, and daughters-in-law. They can also be more or less successful entrepreneurs. I am not going into the detail of your rich and engaging ethnography, as this will emerge, as we will talk through in this chat. Instead, let me start with the first question for you. I want to talk about the process of writing a book. Usually we look at it as a journey, often lasting for several years and involving a series of events, some less expected than others, that together will eventually contribute to the finished product of your monograph, your book. Can you tell us a bit more about the process of writing this book and the important turning points that shaped its final outcome? Thank you, Lara, for this wonderful presentation and for your interesting question, actually. Uh, it is always a little bit hard to reflect on the ways, I would say, a PhD dissertation and later on a monograph, a book, have, have, been, have been written. You mentioned the journey, and yes, indeed, writing, writing a book, writing a monograph is certainly a journey which was for me at least made of back and forth movements between the data I collected, the empirical material, right? The analysis, the interpretation of data, the theory. I'd say that uh, I have been uh, analyzing my material since the very beginning of my fieldwork, as soon as uh, I was progressing on, on my field side. So step by step, I kept on analyzing my material also because I was advised by people not to do this at the very last time. First of all, because data and their analysis were orienting the way I was constructing and reconstructing my research object, but also the fact of analyzing data step by step during the collection of data itself was important to reorient a little bit, I would say, my research questions and, and the theory also that I needed to mobilize to better conceptualize and frame the material I was, I was, dealing, I was dealing with. Writing has come afterwards and it has been a very long moment. It was the moment of the, of the writing of my PhD dissertation, which lasted, I would say, six, seven months. It was a long tunnel. At some point, I could not see the, the light at the end of the tunnel, but in the end, it worked out. And it was, I'd say, a stressful, even though very challenging moment of reflection and also of solitude. But a posteriori, I would say that it was very engaging indeed and very stimulating, even though as a young scholar by that time, I remembered I, I was complaining with senior scholars, friends and colleagues who had already gone through a the writing of a PhD dissertation and everyone kept on saying, oh, this is a creative and stimulating moment. And for me, it sounded like a nightmare. So I, I really wanted that to be over. But afterwards, after I submitted, I defended and I saw the final product uh, uh, published, actually, I would say that, yes, I would go through that again and again, even though I, I, I'm not sure I would dare telling to anyone who is writing a book, oh, this is a creative and stimulating process, keep it long. 
in any case, I'd say that uh, the bigger challenge for me, the biggest challenge for me has been the transformation of a PhD dissertation into a book, because the two, um, I'd say, exercises, academic exercises are not the same. A PhD dissertation is very scholarly based, is very academic, it has its own rules and arts of writing and arts in, in the way of doing it, while a, a book, a monograph, even if it remains a scientific product and an academic work, has to be open for a broader public. And this was really the biggest challenge for me. I am a sociologist, I work on migration studies, and sometimes my dissertation looked more uh, like a metaphysical speculation than an analysis of a, of a daily reality of migration uh, in China and in, in Taiwan. My PhD dissertation was very long. I do not know why I wrote so much. It was very repetitive. It was very redundant. So I think that the biggest challenge was actually to cut it, to readapt it, to reframe it in an easier way to make it more comprehensible. And indeed, what I learned is keep it short and make it easy. Otherwise, nobody's going to read it. And when I, when I signed my editing contract, I realized that I had a maximum of 100,000 words. And I was freaking out because I, I, I was absolutely persuaded that all of, of the content would not enter in such a short you know, word limit, but actually it did. And my book is not even 100,000 words. So this is really an advice I, I will keep for myself in the future and I would like to share with, with everyone. In any case, even if uh, the writing process is made of solitude and reflection, I would also say that a book and the dissertation beforehand is nourished by the multiple exchanges and discussions uh, that I also had with senior scholars, with mentors, with colleagues, with friends during conferences, during workshops, but also, at, at least for me, when revising the journal articles I had already been writing before before the end of, of my book. At the very same time, something which is very important too is not to be shy and to ask other people, friends, colleagues, senior scholars, but also people who are not directly related to one's own uh, academic field, I would say, to read and to help the, with the revision of the, of the chapters. I remember that I gave my chapters to different people who were uh, indeed um, scholars, but who were from different academic backgrounds in sociology, in political science, in sinology broadly, and who were able actually to provide fantastic, very helpful, very useful comments, advice, and critiques. And some of them also helped me a lot to cut my chapters writing down comments like, oh, this is understandable, or this is metaphysic speculation. So I would say that it is really important not to be shy and to dare asking people and having other people to read through the, the work. So it was also a matter of back and forth discussion and exchanges with people who were helping to, to revise it. Thank you so much, Beatrice, uh, especially for emphasizing this aspect of book, uh, not just as a 
personal process, but also as a collective enterprise, a process of asking others. So there is this humble sometimes uh, element in the process of writing a book. I completely agree with that. So let me go ahead with the uh, content of your book, because I believe that, uh, at least from my perspective, as I was reading your book, a particularly fascinating part of it is the methodology. I spent some time reading and rereading it because it's very rich. In your introduction, you mentioned some important concepts such as itinerant ethnography, digital ethnography, and you also bring in the aspect of emotions. So can you tell us a bit more about this methodological choice and how are these features so important in your uh, research process? And also what, what, did you, what did they let you gain in terms of data? Thank you, Laura. Yes, I think I have been developing a, a, a curious and sui generis, perhaps, a methodological device, but that was to some extent uh, necessary and I could not do anything else than developing a kind of moving, mobile and itinerant uh, ethnography. I was studying uh, migration, I was studying movement, I was studying mobility and the mobility of these Chinese migrant women from China to Taiwan, but also of the objects they do commercialize and of the emotions they do produce across multiple places and spaces. And so I also had to be myself on the move to follow women, as George Marcus has, has taught us, but also the objects and their emotions across the times, the spaces and the identities of their migrations and mobilities. Migrations and mobilities which occur within the physical reality, but also online, within digital spaces and digital worlds, and uh, at the very same time, at a very local and a very global uh, scale. And so, to some extent, I had to be mobile to catch the complexity of this, of this movement. Indeed, the fact of developing this sort of itinerant, which is, a, I would say, personal interpretation of Marcus' multi-sided ethnography, this idea of following and tracking something within a globalized world was a methodological choice which did not quite emerge a priori. It was rather constructed on the field, on my field sites, by adapting and readapting the methods to the situations and the experiences I had under my nose. So movements came by following the rhythm, the tempos of, of, my, of my informants, of these women themselves. I'd say that indeed methods are embedded into the empirical evidence someone is, is observing. And uh, at the very same time, methods uh, justify afterwards some theoretical, some theoretical choices too. Something which uh, I appreciate in your question is this double uh, dimension of digital words and emotions. So it means that the message of, of my methodological approach has passed uh, correctly. Um, I, again, both the study of uh, digital words and of the emotional dimension of the experiences of migration were something that I uh, could observe on the field sites, and again, step by step, it was not something that I expected at the beginning of my of my research and of my ethnographic ethnographic work. Uh, digital words, to some extent, the fact that I had to carry out field work and this sort of virtual ethnography within uh, online groups 
and within uh, online applications, specifically WeChat, which is a digital social media platform largely used by, by the women I was, I was interacting with, were a choice which imposed to me as soon as I realized that most of the situations, the experiences, the practices, the interactions, whether uh, activities of solidarity, of sociality, or of entrepreneurship and, and business, were simultaneously taking place online and offline. So I realized to some extent that I had to penetrate those digital, those digital uh, uh, spaces uh, to catch what it was being produced by women uh, inside those spaces. And the same goes with emotions. Emotions have been an important element within my analysis Emotions were an analytical tool to understand and to catch the complexity of the phenomena, the migratory phenomena I was observing, but emotions also became part of my, of my method itself. I would say that it is important to keep in mind the extent to which emotions can be both an analytical tool for the study of migration, but also part of the uh, methodological method. In a nutshell, what I can tell here, and I hope that the reader would be interested enough to, to go through this uh, when reading my book, is that I have been affected by affections. I have been affected by emotions. Emotions, affections, feelings and sentiments are constructed by the ethnographer and by the uh, informants, but they can become a helpful tool uh, the ethnographer can use to develop affectional proximity and emotional closeness uh, within the process of negotiation of field sites and ties of trust and proximity with, uh, with the informants. To some extent, being affected for me meant to develop a strong emotional involvement uh, with the situations I was observing, with the experiences I was contributing to construct and to produce, and with the women I was interacting themselves. Uh, indeed, that meant to me great efforts, enthusiasm, but also very strong frustration due precisely to this engagement and implication. When I was on my field sites in the Chinese countryside, in the Chinese cities, in the factories where I was carrying out an ethnography of migrant labor, but also in Taiwan when I was dealing with uh, women who were experiencing subalternity discrimination and economic marginalization after marriage migration to Taiwan, I was simultaneously a researcher, a friend, an attentive listener, a stranger, sometimes I was even a sister. To some extent, my emotional involvement uh, helped to overstep or even to deconstruct, to destroy the asymmetries which separate the ethnographer and the informants. Reciprocity, affections, closeness, friendship, trust, mutual understanding help to overstep this sort of methodological distinction between the research object and the research subject. And I would say that to some extent even support the primacy of inter intersubjective dynamics during fieldwork, actually. I was close to these women. I was close to these women when being on my field sites, even if I remained a foreigner, a foreign woman who came from Italy, who spoke a weird Chinese with a strong uh, cosmopolitan accent, 
who kept on being sick in the Chinese countryside, who did not quite understand what it was going on, who needed to be guided and to be explained everything. At the same time, I realized that it was this sort of curiosity uh, which turned gradually uh, to acceptance, which made me shift from a stranger to a friend, from social con contempt to acceptance, despite this persistence of alterity. Women's experiences of suffering, of vulnerability, of misrecognition, altered my role and my subjectivity. Certainly, uh, someone could argue that this is a sort of bias, right? But I would say that being affected, at least to me, became the only way of carrying out my fieldwork and this research. Being affected became a tool for investigation and also to produce a more realistic and more pragmatic uh, knowledge. And I said produce, but perhaps this could even be a co-produce, co-produce knowledge together with the women I was interacting with and not side by side with them or against them. It was really a matter of co-production together with them. Thank you very much, Beatrice. So uh, as you mentioned a few seconds ago, you were sister of, you mentioned the, the word of sister, sisterhood, right? And uh, uh, actually by reading your book, uh, an element that seems to be crucial in the accounts uh, you shared is solidarity expressed very often through the term GMA, sisters indeed. Indeed in your book, solidarity emerges a performative, emotional, material and digital feature. Can you tell us a bit more about the role of solidarity in the life of the Chinese migrant women you have met? Thank you, Lara. Solidarity rights. Um, as you mentioned, uh, and you understood it the way I wanted to, uh, I wanted it to be understood. Actually, solidarity is a practice, is an experience, is a constructed constructed performance of uh, uh, support, mutual help, proximity, and uh, closeness uh, by women and amongst women. Solidarity is something that, again, I could observe step by step uh, with the progression of my field sites. And solidarity, to some extent, represented, in my understanding at least, a kind of strategy, a tool of resistance that those women developed, both in China and in Taiwan, to cope with different situations of social contempt, economic marginalization, familiar uh, discrimination in China and in Taiwan. So all along their migratory, their migratory steps. I realized that solidarity was simultaneously an emotional, a social, a moral practice collectively performed, produced and performed by Chinese migrants. Solidarity emerged at the very beginning of my observations inside the Chinese factory where these women uh, are exploited around the assembly lines of the of the multinational enterprises they work in in the in the in the Chinese cities in in the big uh, urban cities of southern China, and then solidarity is reperformed after they do migrate to Taiwan once more to cope with uh, discrimination, disqualification, and uh, exclusion exclusion uh, broadly. 
I would say that solidarity is, again, as I said, a strategy, a weapon to resist against alternative vulnerability and discrimination within the different spaces, times of of migration. And um, I would say that for these women, uh, solidarity is also an important tool for identity construction. Women consider themselves as being sisters, as being TMA, which means that they do not only mutually recognize each other and their subjective identities, but they also do come to terms with the fact that they can develop mutuality, proximity and uh, collective help because they do share a kind of collective destiny together, a collective destiny uh, upon which solidarity practices are constructed which is primarily based on uh, shared migratory, gendered, familial and professional experiences, both in China and in Taiwan. At the very same time, the fact of being GMA, of being sisters, has a very strong emotional dimension. Repertories of positive and negative emotions support the making of practices of solidarities. Negative emotions, which are frustration, sorrow, anger, disappointment, disillusionment, and positive emotions, which are joy, enthusiasm, determination, projection, aspiration, do accompany the experiences of mutual help and mutual understanding amongst these women. So I had no choice but digging into this emotional dimension of solidarity and the ways it is performed and reperformed as an experience, as a practice, and specifically and importantly, I would say, as a resource to cope with vulnerability along uh, the diversified and bifurcated migratory paths. And I would say that uh, an important element which needs to be strengthened is the way solidarity is performed both within the physical reality women daily live and construct their experiences in, both in the Chinese countryside they come from, the Chinese city they first migrate to and work in and then Taiwan, but, but also online within the digital spaces, they do produce sociality and uh, commerce, business, entrepreneurship. Uh, solidarity sometimes in terms of interactions, uh, mutual support and mutual help uh, is difficult to be performed within the physical reality due to the constraints, the obstacles to movement and to the construction of practices themselves when these women are segregated at home or when these women are overloaded by work and they cannot leave their their working space. So solidarity can also be performed online and the emotional dimension becomes even stronger because emotion supports the making of the very first online interactions on WeChat, this Chinese online application when women meet and gather together. And it is online that actually the constraints of of the physical reality can be overstepped and solidarity can be performed uh, in a very in a more perhaps even effective and stronger and stronger way
Thank you so much, uh, Beatrice. And uh, the next question is uh, related to categories. That is another feature which I found important in your book, is the idea of continuity in mobility patterns. Similarly to the book by Nicola Piper and Nina Rosses, uh, Wife or Worker, Asian Women and Migration, you critique the idea that immigration categories are a fixed condition in the experiences of an individual. So some people start as migrant workers, for example, and might continue as marriage migrants. And in the meantime, they are also productive actors, workers in the society they join. So can you tell us a bit more about up to what extent it's important to preserve a sense of those categories and when instead it's important to go beyond this? Yes, one of my objectives in terms of uh, scholarship contribution, especially when we look at what it has been produced so far related to Chinese migrants and Chinese marriage migrants in Taiwan, was to overstep actually the sort of rigid taxonomies and categories of worker, wife, uh, mother, brides, Uh, in China and in Taiwan. And again, this was not a choice that I made a priori. Categories should not be strict, should not be rigid, but at the same time, they are helpful when analyzing the data and trying to understand the complexity of migratory phenomena. But it was really a matter of um, responding to an empirical evidence that I was was observing. I would say that... uh, The fact that uh, we need to overstep these categories when looking at this uh, Chinese migrant women's mobility and migratory experiences is once again related to the emotional or even imaginative and aspirational dimension of their migration. It is through the production of emotions, of ambition, of aspiration, of imagination, of representations that lines of continuity amongst the different migratory paths, stroll to urban migration from the countryside to the city, labor migration from this labor migration within the Chinese city where women become proletarians, and later marriage migration to Taiwan, or again once more divorce, remigration back to China. Within these migratory paths, actually, there are lines of continuities which are related to the ambitions and the capacity of project making these women develop. Women aspire, aspire to upward social and economic mobility, but they do also aspire to modernity, urbanity, consumption and globalization. And this idea of subjectivity making and of identity transformation leads their migratory paths. Uh, It makes migratory paths more complex and bifurcated, I would say, and it complexifies, it makes it complicated, actually, uh, the the experiences of of migration uh, themselves. So it was not a matter of overstepping categories for the sake of it, but it was a matter of Uh, trying to identify the lines of continuity which were more related to aspirations and ambitions rather than uh, to the roles that those women are actually attributed and are imposed both in China and uh, and in Taiwan. Indeed, the work by uh, Piper and Roses was pioneer in this sense. I think that I tried to indeed uh, draw on that but perhaps provide a different 
understanding, which was, again, more related to the emotional, aspirational, imaginative dimension of, of migration, which is something that we cannot neglect while looking at, at, at migratory experiences uh, broadly and in this con context specifically. Thank you very much. Now, another question that is much more about the broader context. China currently is one of the world's faster growing economies and is often seen as an aggressive economy and military power regionally as well as globally. In recent years, its growth, though, has slowed down and new problems related to inflation, unemployment, overpopulation have emerged. What do the stories and ambitions of your informants tell us of contemporary China and maybe also about contemporary Taiwan? Oh, China, a fascinating place which changes all the time. And this is indeed something that presents an obstacle, a challenge, or at least an element which needs to be taken into account every time we do research. Broadly, I am persuaded, and I keep on repeating this, I was telling this to my students last week too, that migration and migratory processes are a mirror to our societies and are a mirror to, our, to the social and economic transformations a specific society goes through at a specific moment. This is indeed very true for China and very true for Taiwan. The structure of migrations the, the orientations of migratory paths, the experiences migrants go through both in China and in Taiwan, tell us more about the contemporary shape of Chinese and Taiwanese societies. At the very same time, if China is a changing reality, a compressed and accelerated reality to observe, Taiwan is a mirror to the global world. And uh, Taiwan's transformation has perhaps a less accelerated rhythm, but at the very same time, it tells us a lot about what is going on at a regional scale, but also at a global scale. And I find it so fascinating to observe the changes within migratory experiences, specifically in Taiwan, to apprehend not only the specificities of a migratory context in East Asia, but also in a globalized, in a globalized world. Migrations in China, rural to urban migrations, tell us the story of the structure of inequalities and hierarchies uh, in the Chinese city and in, the, in its labor markets. At the very same time, they tell us experiences of labor exploitation, of uh, underemployment, of disindustrialization nowadays. Migration and migratory processes in China during the last 10, 15 years have been changing so much. And I'm not sure that today uh, the stories uh, I am uh, telling in this book would be the same, actually. And this is also something absolutely fascinating. We see how China was persuaded by these women as a place to live behind and Taiwan as a as a golden land, a place to land to where ambitions and aspirations can be can finally become true. This is what I observed in 2015 and 2017. You know, when I was observing remigration, uh, return migration from Taiwan to China in 2018, I was also coming to fact, uh, coming to terms with the fact that Ch Taiwan was not that promised land anymore, but China was being reconsidered as a land for opportunities by the very same migrants. 
for a very long time, Chinese migrant women have been marrying Taiwanese men and migrating to Taiwan, seeking hypergamy, trying to marry up, seeking a poor social and economic mobility. Nowadays, there are less women migrating to Taiwan. There are new foreign brides marrying Chinese businessmen and Chinese local citizens uh, and migrating to China. Actually, there are women from Burma, there are women from Vietnam, there are women from the Philippines who do not only marry Taiwanese, but growingly marry Chinese men and do move and settle down in China because China may be perceived at least by them as the new land for opportunities. At the very same time, uh, the women I met in Taiwan who got married with Taiwanese men do not fully abandon Taiwan. From Taiwan, they develop new uh, economic activities and new patterns of mobility, which growingly link Taiwan to Southeast Asian countries. I have women who started developing business with Singapore or with Malaysia, while keeping on their back and forth movements between China and Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is a land of departure, is a land of arrival, is a land of new departure and of new arrivals for these women and for the objects they do commercialize. And this is absolutely, absolutely uh, fascinating. There are new Chinese migration towards uh, Taiwan, but also towards other places which link Taiwan to new sites and to new spaces and to new places in this globalized and globalizing and globalizing world. Thank you so much, uh, again, for offering such an interesting picture of contemporary China and Taiwan in relation to their position in the global regional order as well, but also in relation to their stage of development, economic development, social evolution. Uh, so let me ask you a last question. In your last chapter, you mentioned about yours being an incomplete cartho cartography. Can you please explain to our audience what you mean with incomplete cartography and are all ethnography therefore a work in progress? Oh, incomplete cartography, incomplete work. It was perhaps my final note of depression when I had to to conclude and to sum up my ideas. Perhaps I was not happy to conclude, so I decided that that had to be uh, incomplete. No, I'm joking. Incomplete, it does not, uh, is not synonym, or at least it was not synonym for me of, uh, of unachieved or unfinished. I use the word incomplete to strengthen the fact that in a world of globalization where uh, movements complexify, where movements uh, become uh, more and more complicated by the emergence of multiple experiences, practices constructed by migrants, but also of novel scales, whether those are physical or digital, material or emotional, local and global, actually movements remains difficult to be fully understood, especially to be fully pictured, because um, movement can vary. Women's migratory experiences vary. The activities, social, economic, immoral, emotional, cultural, they do produce and perform vary. And we do not know about the future. We talked about women's movements. We talked about the movements of the objects they do commercialize across their mobility patterns online and offline. And we could wonder where their movements will be oriented towards 
in the future. I end my book uh, by describing the novel life of Fujin, who is one of the protagonists of my story, the woman who commercializes the orange bra, which is uh, produced in a Chinese factory and commercialized online when Fujin is in Taiwan. And uh, in the end of my book, I, I do describe her current life, which is actually not in China nor in Taiwan. Fujin is today in Singapore, where she keeps on developing business, where she keeps on selling orange bras and other products. We could wonder where Fujin will be in the future. In 10 years, we could wonder where the orange bras, the chicken feet, the cosmetics, the spicy food uh, she, she and the other women sell will be, will be in the future. Migration, uh, migratory paths are bifurcated. They are constructed at the crossroad between aspirations, imagination, resource, resource mobilization, and constraints. But this opens and reopens uh, more and more uh, new opportunities uh, to think about what is next. Fujin, her bra, other bras, other objects, other women may may uh, appear on these roads of globalization, may appear on these uh, mobile and fluid migratory paths. Uh, we do not know where these women will be in the future. We do not know where their objects uh, will be commercialized in in the future, but we can certainly keep on uh, observing and carrying out fieldwork to follow them and to track their movements and their, and their mobilities. And this is indeed uh, not the end of a story, but is an opportunity to, to go on and to tell what's next and to, and to apprehend what is going to happen in the future, actually. It's an invitation to move on. So precisely on this point, I'm very curious. Uh, I would love to know what's next uh, for you in terms of research and in relation to this research. I have not given up with the study of migration. I am at the moment reorienting my, my research object towards the mobility and the entrepreneurial activities constructed by uh, Chinese uh, connected entrepreneurs between China, Taiwan, Singapore and Southeast Asia. I do look at the way Chinese migrations are uh, being transformed by the new economic and social opportunities which are negotiated between China and Southeast Asia, but also between Taiwan and Southeast Asia. And uh, I am curious to understand more about the digitalized practices of entrepreneurship that migrants, Chinese migrants, can develop uh, in uh, Southeast Asia, and specifically by linking Southeast Asian countries, Singapore to Taiwan. I look at the way the women I studied before are developing new commercial trades and new commercial circuits with Singapore by mobilizing local networks of Chinese migrants uh, there, but also other networks amongst members of the uh, Chinese digital diaspora in, in Southeast Asia. And this is also a way to um, look at the changing shape of globalization, indeed, of economies, the role of digital platforms and online applications in shaping both migration, but also economic and entrepreneurial activities. And uh, also, to some extent, perhaps in the transformation of capitalism, a capitalism which is also produced and performed on a daily basis and 
through digital platforms by migrants who are the novel actors of globalization and of capitalistic practices. Thank you so much, Beatrice, for this, also for enlightening us on what could be next. And uh, in general, thank you very much for talking to us about such an engaging and stimulating work. Let me repeat the title of your book because I hope that this chat also inspired many other people to indeed buy and read this book. The title is Women Migrant in Southern China and Taiwan, Mobilities, Digital Economies and Emotions. It was published by Routledge in 2021. I hope that many of our listeners have been inspired by this book chat, the second of a series. Thank you again, Lara. Thank you very much for this invitation. I've been so happy to share uh, my thoughts and my experience of uh, book writing and the content of my book indeed. And I, I hope that Yes, this will catch the attention of our of our audience and uh, that people will be happy to take a look. Thank you again. Thank you very much.